got your Bible or some device, you'll be looking at the Scriptures with us this morning. We're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 6. So we have been working our way through Acts over the last uh, several weeks, um, and, and really is just a brief means of recap. Um, we are seeing tension develop um, with the, the Jewish uh, leadership towards the church, right? And it's, it has started with warnings. Um, there have been some um, and, and folks being thrown in prison. There have been some beatings, right? But it, it's just continuing to ratchet up. And then last week, our kind of primary uh, passage is we, we looked at the church meeting a need from within, right? That you had these um, Hellenist Jews. These are Jews that are, were not local. They have lived across the world to have come back. Right? and that their widows were not being cared for or being missed in some of the distribution of, of food and of care and of money throughout the week. And so the apostles and the church bring seven men forward. It's kind of the, the origin story of, of the deacons, Stephen and Philip being a couple of these men, right, who are going to begin to care for and take care of this very practical need that has emerged in the church. And as we get into this passage this morning as we continue in chapter 6 and into chapter 7. Um, remember that Luke has written this kind of two-part book, right? He's got Luke, the first half, Acts, the second half. And he's writing it to his kind of patron, Theophilus. And one of Theophilus' issues was he was asking, like, why is there tension? Like, why has there been so much difficulty between the church and Judaism. And we're, gonna, we're seeing that through the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Right? We saw um, the, the Jewish leaders right, rejecting Jesus. We're now seeing them reject the church. And so Luke is showing why that division, why that tension is there. We're going to see it really kind of come to a head this morning. Right? We're also seeing um, Stephen's story specifically, right? This, this deacon in the church, this man of faith and of grace. Um, and we're also going to see why did the church, right, who, who at the moment is concentrated in Jerusalem, and it is beautiful and it is sweet, and although there has been some difficulty, there are thousands of them. You can imagine the impact they're having on the city, right? How are we going to get to mission? How are we going to get them going forward to the nations? And so there's like threads and layers to this story this morning, that we're going to see Stephen's story, but on top of that, it's how is God going to use um, this situation to get the church out of Jerusalem, and we're also answering the question, why is there tension between the Jewish religious leaders and the church, right? Like, that all of these things are kind of being stacked upon one another. Um, it might be one of those situations where Maybe you're a child or a grandchild has asked you, how did we end up living where we live? And as you go back and, and kind of pull at all those threads, you're like, oh, well, right, like grandpa got a job transfer, right? Or it could be, well, someone moved here because we had a relative die and they, and they were here to take care of someone, right? Like you can look back to these singular moments and go, oh, we ended up somewhere because this moment happened a long time ago. This morning is going to be one of those moments where when the church looks up and a generation goes, how did we end up in all of these places across the world? They would point back 
to what happens to Stephen in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And so let's pick up first in um, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We'll stop there for the moment. And so, listen, as we, we talked last week, sometimes our perception of, of a deacon, right, is skewed by experience rather than Scripture. Right? And, and so as you look at this, as, as Stephen is described as a man full of grace and of power, um, as he is doing great signs and wonders, like a deacon is not merely a servant, right? Like these are not just guys who are off men and women doing practical things, right? That these are spirit-filled, spirit-led folks. And Stephen is the first that we're seeing mentioned here outside of the apostles who are doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so, right, it, it's Luke giving us some insight that this is going to happen as the, as the church is going to spread out and move forward, that God is going to continue to confirm His pleasure and His approval of what's happening through these things, even when it's not always at the hands of the apostles. And so, Stephen himself was not a local Jew. This is, they, they're the groups that you would have called the Hebrews, right? So Hellenists are those who have been out in the Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking, Greek culture of the world. They're ethnically Jewish, right? But they don't necessarily think um, Judaism first because they speak Greek. They think Greek. And so they have come back, right? And now they're a part of it. So you have two groups of Jews, one who are locals, one who are more outsiders, but are both ethnically Jews. And so there's a synagogue for them. And so the freedmen are former slaves, and you've got these folks from all over the world, the Alexandrians and those from Asia. And so Stephen is one of them, right? right? He is a Hellenist. He is a Jew from somewhere else in the world who has been dispersed. And they are talking about Jesus and the things of Judaism and the things of Christianity, and they're disputing with him, and they're, and they're upset with him going, hey, we don't know that we agree with you. It says that they could not withstand, in verse 10, his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They're losing this conversation, and they're not, they don't appreciate it. But remember what Jesus told us. This is Luke 21. As he's talking to the apostles and to the disciples, he says, listen, in verse 12, but before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. 
Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And so we're seeing that Jesus has warned the apostles and the, and the disciples, hey, they're going to come against you, but I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you a voice to answer. This is an indication of, of Luke 21 coming to fruition here in Acts chapter 6. That is, they are wanting to argue with Stephen. They keep losing, right? They, they cannot figure out his wisdom and the spirit in which he is speaking. And so... They decide, how are we going to stop this guy? And they begin to manipulate and lie. And, and basically, they get some men to come and say, hey, we've heard this man saying things that he's not saying, right? But they, they said he is blaspheming against God, against the law, the Torah, which we love, and against the temple. Like, we've we got to do something about this. And so they kind of violently grab him, take him before the council. And in verse 15, at the end of chapter 6, it says, The council, who were sitting and looking at him, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Luke here is, is bringing our attention in Exodus 34, when Moses had come off the mountain the second time, Mount Sinai, with the Ten Commandments. Right As he comes down, it says his face shone like an angel, right because he had been with God. And the people were terrified of it, and he ended up having to put a veil on. In Luke chapter 9, when, when three of the apostles are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? It says that His face began to shine before right, the veil was truly pulled back and they saw Him in all of His glory. And so here we see the council seeing His face like an angel, right? And you can imagine them thinking, like, what is God affirming of this? Like, is God actually, is He, is he saying that Stephen is right? But we're, let's pick up in verse 7. Like Luke tells us, like, listen, God is he's innocent. God is affirming him here. Pick up in chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Meaning all these accusations against you. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land, which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Listen, you can imagine when they're asking him, the council goes, hey, so did you say these things or not? They want a yes or a no, right? But you notice throughout the Gospels, when, when they ask Jesus a question, he never gives a clear, 
direct answer to begin with. Like they just want, Jesus, what about this? And, and then he starts to tell a parable, and you can just imagine they're like, Jesus, please. Well, here they ask Stephen, hey, Stephen, did you say these things or not? And he starts to tell them their shared history. Like it, it's this like narrative, this summary of their, the history of Israel. And he, but you notice what he says. He doesn't say your fathers. He says our fathers. And he begins to talk about our father Abraham and how God right, went out to him in, in Mesopotamia and said, listen, I want to call you. I'm calling you out. Right? And this is the, the beginning, the birth of the nation of Israel, that he is going to draw him to the place. He's taking him to the land that would be their homeland. They're not th- he's not there yet, but he says, I want you to go. And he brings him here, and he says, you're going to have descendants, and this is going to be their home. And he says he doesn't actually give Abraham any of the land yet, but there's this promise of an inheritance that is coming, and Abraham didn't yet have a child. Right? This is mo- a, a bulk of the story of Genesis, of Abraham right, trusting God, of having faith, of following him, and God providing and building a nation. I love that, that Abraham or that sorry Stephen here in verse two says the God of glory appeared to our father. When we hear the word holiness, right, we think of things that are separate and, and removed, like like that there's a divide. And God's holiness, right, is something that we can't begin to stand because it's it's so holy and we're not. But God's glory is him revealing himself. It's him showing himself of, of him manifesting his nature and his character and his works to the world. And so what he's saying is, the God of glory, as he's revealing himself to us, as he starts by building a nation. And he does it through our shared father, Abraham. Right? And, he, and he takes them to this place, and he even tells them, I, I know you're here in the land at the moment, Abraham, but your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years, but eventually they're going to come back to this place. And so we see these promises. And so you can imagine the councils going, not sure what this has to do with what we just asked you. But you can also imagine others are in the room affirming, going, we agree with you. That's right. We, we think that too. And so he continues. Let's pick up in verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, right? The, the 12 tribes, the 12 brothers, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And he rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. And there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph, Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So we're going to stop there for a second. And so, listen, we, we preached through Genesis. It took us almost a year. Like um, Stephen here is summarizing it in like two minutes. Okay? 
So he says we have this nation building of Abraham, and then we, he like just starts skipping generations, and he gets down, he says, all right. And then there's these 12 brothers, right? And they're the 12 tribes of Israel. And you can imagine the council just going, yes, Stephen, we know this. But he says they, right, that, that Joseph was sold um, into slavery, but he's the one who's going to rescue his people, right? Because of his ability to, to hear from God, he's interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. He is elevated eventually, although he had been in prison, he had been sold by his brother, all this wickedness had happened. Here he is in charge. He's able to make sure there's food. The famine is, is weathered. And Israel leaves the place that God has promised them, has ended up in Egypt, right? We've already been told they're going to spend 400 years enslaved. He is showing us the, the trajectory of this story, that God is with Joseph in the midst of his difficulty, and that he then rescues his people down the road. Again, he talks about it being our fathers over and over again. So now let's pick up in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And at this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's home. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? And the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me? as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from, where you, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai 
and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey Him. They thrust Him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. And he quotes here from Amos chapter 5. Do you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tin of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So he then spends a significant amount of time here talking about the story of Moses, right? From, from being born um, in, as, to a slave under Egypt, right? To him trying to redeem and lead out the nation of Israel, right? By his hand, to fleeing for 40 years, right? To being sent by God to lead the nation of Israel into the wilderness and to the promised land, right? That we know that God does this through mighty power and works and signs, that He gives them the law and He is continuing to build them as a nation. And so He's just, He's again affirming, He's like, men, our story is the same story. I'm calling Moses mine. I'm saying it's our fathers. And you, could, you can imagine them affirming this, going, okay, Stephen, we agree with all of this, but this isn't answering the question that we've asked, right? And so he continues one more time. We did seven verses last week. We're doing more than that this week. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness to the wilderness, in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they were disposed when they disposed the nations that God drove out from before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So we've gone from the judges now all the way to David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. This is Isaiah 61. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Okay, listen, I, we, we have just covered, right, like 50 plus verses. And, and, and if you grew up in church, you're going, these are a lot of Sunday school type stories. You're going, okay, you can imagine like the council here going, Stephen, what's the point? Like you are just reaffirming our history. Are you like trying to bore us to death so that we don't kill you? Like you can imagine like there's this sense of like, we don't get what is happening here. Why are you saying these things? Right? So he's gone from Genesis and, and Abraham, right? The call of a nation to them being enslaved, to them being rescued by Moses in the hand of God, right? Through now the nation being given the law, now they've been given the tabernacle, right, which was a temporary structure that was like a worship site that they could move throughout the wilderness until Joshua, as one of the, in the judges, like they do that, to King David, to King Solomon. We are covering hundreds of years. 
And he's done this in just a few moments. And he's telling their shared, united story. But here's the thread that he's weaving. What has he, what has he made sure that they've affirmed? God spoke to Abraham, not in the land. He was far off in Mesopotamia when he was called. It wasn't here on our homeland. It was far off when God spoke to him. Right? Where did he speak to Moses? But in Egypt. Where did he speak to, to, to Joseph? In Egypt. Where then was he speaking to the nation of Israel? But in the wilderness. Where was God speaking to the nation after that as they began to take over the land but through a tabernacle right, that, that traveled with them? It wasn't a permanent structure. And so what Stephen is beautifully doing here is he's saying, listen, you want to know where the holy place is? Wherever God is. You, you say it's here in the temple alone. I'm saying our own history, our own shared heritage, our own fathers have, shot, have taught us and shown us that God will speak wherever He wants to speak. That He will speak not only in this land, but all over the world. And He'll go get our people and bring them wherever He wants them to be. Because where God is, it's holy. Wherever It doesn't matter if it's desolate, like the burning bush. God was there, so it was a holy place. And Moses took off his shoes, his sandals. Right? He's saying, listen, we know that God isn't confined to this box, to this temple. It is wherever He is. So what is He beginning? Right? He's kind of like laying a trap for them to say, you're affirming all of these things. You have misapplied the temple. The temple is a beautiful place. We have, it, we've used it. It's been good. But you think the temple's the only place God can speak, and our shared history says that's not true. It's not true. And so you want to be angry at me for speaking against the temple, but what have they done is they begin to see it as a work of their hand. There is pride in the temple. They've done it. Right? God is controlled to some extent. They believe in it. Right? People have to come to them and you begin to take it for granted. You begin to even make a religious thing that is beautiful and was a gift an idol. So church, we, we can do this today, right? That we can make buildings today. We don't view them in the same way as the temple, but we can begin to say, oh, we have to have this. And we can begin to make it an idol, right? We can begin to look at our customs or our traditions and say, no, 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 um, God did this in the past, and I'm going to hold tightly to it, and God's saying, I'm doing this over here. And we're like, but we have what you used to do. Right? Like we're holding on to the things that we, that we first experienced. And, and what Stephen is saying is, listen, God has spoken in multitude of ways, in a multitude of places, to a multitude of people, right? And we have agreed and affirmed that that's our history, and yet here you are today, believing that me saying anything about the temple is worth killing me over. So he quotes from Isaiah 66 where God himself says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Like God himself is saying, I have made it all. Like I'll use the earth and that, like that's where I'll rest my feet. Like he is saying, like, what are you going to build for me? that's going to contain me, or that's going to impress me. 
Even Solomon, who had the, the privilege and the pleasure of building it, as he is dedicating it, this is 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon himself says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Like that he understood, like, as big and as grand and as beautiful as it is, he goes, this is absurd to think this is where God's going to be. Like that, that he's just going to kind of move in and this is it. Because all of creation is his. So, so Stephen is trying to tell them, our people have always said the temple is only in part. It's not this full and whole thing where God is the only place where He can be. And then, I want you to hear this warning. This is from Jeremiah chapter 7. Beginning in verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Right? What is Jeremiah saying? He's like, there are those who will say, this is the temple of the Lord. Like it basically, it gives us carte blanche, a free pass. Whatever we say, whatever we do, right, we get away with it. And so Jeremiah says, don't trust the deceptive words that this is the temple of the Lord. And he continues, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, which is the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, if you don't shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, will you trust in deceptive words to no avail? Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Like This is not new in Israel. He's saying, listen, we have known that men, prophets have stood up and said, you think you can do whatever you want, and then step into the temple and say, this is the temple of the Lord. We're free. We're saved. We're good. And then go out and do whatever it is you want. He's like, this is an abhorrence to the Lord. That you would attempt to cover up your wicked, not God-honoring behavior by saying, but look at the temple. We have done our religious duty. He says, this is not the heart of God who wants obedience over sacrifice. And so Stephen is trying to draw these thoughts and these ideas to the council here. God has spoken and worked and moved in places other than the temple and other than Israel. And he's saying, you want to call me blasphemous? As a nation, we have been unfaithful a myriad of times. Even as God rescued us out of Egypt, what did we do? We've literally made an idol. And said, we don't know where Moses is, but let's worship this and go back to Egypt. Right? He's like, we have done this over and over again that we have made idols that we can control instead of following the one true God. And so, if you hear the subtleness, it's beginning to be less subtle, Stephen is saying, and thus you have made the temple. It is, it is a weighty thing here. And so, let's see where this goes. Verse 
Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, which is Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. So listen, Stephen went from like maybe boring to on fire. right? Because he basically set, t- says this shared history. You can imagine the crowd is, is murmuring and talking. And then he says, you're stubborn. Stiff neck means stubborn. Like you're unable to turn your head to see what it is that God is doing. You are stubborn and stiff necked They would pride themselves on what? On being circumcised Jews, right? The sign of obedience, but not necessarily obedience. Because he's saying your heart, right, isn't circumcised. Your ears aren't circumcised. Your mind isn't. Like you are not honoring God with obedience. You are looking for a sign to cover you. And we're circumcised. We have the temple. We're Jews. We're good. And he's like, our people have not been faithful to this. We cannot claim that this is sufficient. We have killed the prophets. And you have just killed Jesus. And we were the ones who were given the law. We were the ones given the word. You haven't been faithful. And so he has turned the argument to say, you want to put me on trial in this sham of a trial for being blasphemous? You're blasphemous. You've rejected Jesus. And you, you'll take all of these things, these uncircumcised things, over Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, we hear Jesus say this, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Him. John 1, John tells us that Jesus has come and has tabernacled. He has dwelled with His people. Like He has come, God incarnate, among the flesh and blood. He has come. And so He's saying, there's something greater than the temple is here because God is here. And He is not contained in this box that you have built. And so what... what Stephen ultimately is saying is this, that both the temple and the law have found their fulfillment in Jesus. That the law was pointing us to Jesus and the temple was meant to point us to Jesus and Jesus has come and you killed Him, you murdered Him, you blasphemous people. You can imagine this doesn't go over well. Like, to say the least. Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18.18 Right? We see that he had promised that there would be a prophet like himself who would come. Right, He's speaking of Jesus. So Stephen is trying to draw through their shared history to this point to say it's Jesus. And now, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Him. And they cast Him out of the city 
And they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of his execution. Have you ever seen someone so mad they couldn't speak, like they're just grounding their teeth? Like you can imagine this mob scene here, this blasphemous scene where they are grinding their teeth and they are enraged. And instead of waiting for justice, instead of waiting for this sham of a trial to be over, they just rush him. And they drag him out feeling completely justified. And they haul him out of the city and they stone him to death. Right? Because as they're in the process of doing this, he sees a vision of heaven and he says, Jesus! Because they don't think He's the Son of God. He says, Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, and they're like, like they lose their minds and they kill Him. As a blasphemer. And, and Luke subtly introduces Saul to us, who's going to become a, a, big, a major player in the rest of Acts, as one who was there holding the coats, watching this scene take place, affirming and glad they have crucified, or not crucified, but they have stoned Stephen. Stephen becomes the model martyr. A martyr is someone who has died for their faith, right? And so you can read throughout history for the last 2,000 years books, books like Fox's Book of Martyrs that have just shown over and over again where folks have gone boldly to their death because they trust that Jesus is with them in that moment. Because, they, because of what Stephen saw and what he did. This becomes kind of the model for that. That he sees that Jesus is sufficient in the midst of horrible circumstances. And so as we think through his sermon here, there was horrible circumstances of um, the people of Israel being enslaved. There was a famine, right? There was um, them being chased by Egypt, right? There, were, there was all sorts of things that have gone on. But that God has said throughout, I was with you. I'm taking care of you. I'm protecting you. I'm providing for you. I'm making sure you're okay. And in the midst of this horrible circumstance, right, Stephen sees Jesus. That he is not alone. He has not been forsaken. And so would we take heart this morning that when your circumstances are horrible, you may not always be delivered in the earthly manner in which you want. Right? As we would say, we'd go, okay, so God now swoop in and like pull Stephen out. Like That's what we want to see. He doesn't get delivered in the way that we would want. But he was not alone, and he was not forsaken. That God was with him. And we see a prayer of Acts 4, a prayer for boldness being answered. Because it would be easy in this moment, Stephen is alone in front of an enraged crowd. What would you not say to keep them off of you? And yet Stephen proclaims truth and calls them to repentance. You'll notice here that after saying our fathers and our fathers, right, over and over again, in verse 51, it's no longer our, he says you. You stiff-necked people. And you want to know why a divide begins to come, Theophilus? It's here. That there is a change where the law has been received, and and the land has been received, and the temple has been received, and the Spirit has been received, and Jesus has come. But here's where the church is going to say, the Jewish religious leaders, we're going to start to diverge here. 
Because we see Jesus as the Son of God. And you don't. And we're calling you to repentance. But Jesus and, and, and God the Father are affirming what we're doing here. And you continue to kill. A couple of thoughts and we'll be done. Jesus is alive. And He's at work. Like, all throughout Acts, they're saying Jesus is alive, and it's because of moments like this where like, He's affirmed that He is working and moving still. He's not distant and gone. He is alive and He is at work. You'll notice that, that Stephen cries out. He says, He saw the Holy Spirit, full of the Spirit. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens open." the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, like He, and then in verse 59 says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The reason we pray in Jesus' name is because Jesus is our mediator. Like that He says, Jesus is standing there, and so He calls out, Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus, affirm me to the Father. Jesus, take me. The reason we end our prayers in Jesus' name is because He is our peacemaker and our mediator with God. So we see Stephen doing this. And then, when we hear about the Son of Man, it's always seated at the right hand of the Father. And here it is, Jesus standing. Why is that imagery important? Why does it matter? Because in that moment, we see Jesus coming. He's coming. He's like, Stephen, I've got you. I'm affirming you. He is confessing to the Father, He's mine. He belongs to me. And so we see that affirmation occurring. Church, for those of you who know Jesus this morning, Jesus will stand in your death and say, He's mine. She's mine. To the Father. He will be your mediator, your confirmation, your affirmation. He is standing and saying, Come on, although you taste, right? Even though death comes, you will not taste death. You will surely live, John 11, right? Because He is taking you to where you belong, and He is affirming you to the Father. He is our mediator and our rescuer. So as you imagine the the difficulty of Acts 7, of Stephen seeing this angry crowd and yet seeing Jesus affirm him, would you go into the difficult circumstances of your life knowing that He does not leave us and He does not forsake us? That He is with us and He will affirm you. And that no matter what we face, an enraged mob, cancer, loss of loved ones, war, that we are secure in His strong and mighty hand. We are. And we can take Stephen's example and we can see a myriad of them throughout the last 2,000 years. And Jesus is enough regardless of the circumstance. Let's pray. Father, thank You for a challenging Word. God, we we cannot even begin to, to think about being in Stephen's shoes and yet we know that if that moment were to come for us, that You would give us the mercy and the grace we need in that moment. We don't have it this morning, but we would have it then. And God, I pray that that for those of us in the room who know You this morning, that we would fill our hearts 
buoyed, our spirits lifted to know that you stand and receive those who belong to you, affirming and saying, they're mine. And God, for those this morning who do not know you, God, that they would long for that to be their story as well. That they would trust that your grace has far outrun their sin and they would turn to you and taste and see that you are good and delight in you and follow you and obey you, not with religious trappings, but with faith in Jesus. And so would you take your word and when you minister to us this morning, we need you, Jesus. Spirit, move among us. In your name we pray. Amen.